Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I almost broke the tape. (laughs) Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Tonight's program is being held in association with KQED. I'm Brian Watt, news anchor for KQED and your moderator for the program. As our audience here knows, this time we will be focusing on an upcoming PBS four-hour documentary series, College Behind Bars, airs November 25th and 26th around the country. It's distilled from nearly 400 hours of cinema verite footage, and College Behind Bars explores the lives of a dozen incarcerated men and women as they struggle to earn degrees in the Bard Prison Initiative, a program of Bard College that is one of the most rigorous and effective prison education programs in the country. In this era of mass incarceration, America is the world's largest jailer with more than 2 million men and women behind bars. 630,000 are released annually, and nearly 50% end up back in prison within five years, trapped in a cycle of imprisonment, release, and reincarceration. Higher education was once commonplace in American prisons, but it started fading fast after 1994, when Congress ended federal Pell Grants for the incarcerated as part of the Clinton crime bill. In the nearly 20 years since the Bard Prison Initiative began, more than 500 alumni have been released, and fewer than 4% have gone back. The program currently enrolls 300 men and women in six prisons and costs $6,000 per student per year, most of it privately funded. Today, we're pleased to have the filmmakers behind College Behind Bars and two alumni of the Bard Prison Initiative. (laughs) For 30 years, Lynn Novick has been directing and producing landmark documentary films about American culture, history, politics, sports, art, and music. With co-director Ken Burns, she has created more than 80 hours of acclaimed programming for PBS, including the Vietnam War, baseball, jazz, Frank Lloyd Wright, the war, and prohibition. This DuPont, Columbia, and Peabody Award-winning filmmaker is a graduate of Yale, go Bulldogs, (laughs) and College Behind Bars is Novick's solo directorial debut. Sarah Botstein is producer of College Behind Bars, and for 20 years she has produced award-winning documentaries with Lynn Novick, collaborating with her and Ken Burns. She produced Prohibition in 2011, The War in 2007, both Emmy Award-winning documentaries. She is a graduate of Columbia University with a degree in American Studies. On the end, Salih Israel is a formerly incarcerated software engineer who learned to code during his incarceration while earning a BA in language and literature. He is currently CTO and minority owner of the DIY micro web page platform SuperSocial. Upon returning home in 2016, Salih became a data analyst with the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund before formerly formally joining the BPI team in in July of 2017. Last but not least on our panel. Giovanni Hernandez was born and raised in the Bronx and is a graduate of the Bard Prison Initiative, which I imagine we'll be referring to a lot here as BPI. 
He credits his liberal arts education with providing him a concrete understanding of the various forces that dictate societal circumstances and how to work toward effective systems change. Giovanni. And I want to start with Giovanni because I learned something pretty exciting. I mean, aside from all that I had already learned, but today, this is a special day for you, Giovanni. Uh, yes. Tell us about it. <clears throat> yes, it is. Oh, um, you've all just seen the clips and um, that last scene of me coming home. Um, that was actually three years ago today. I would just like to say a little bit about that. Please. Because um, it's an emotional day for me, and all my, my allergies are also really bad, so please bear <laughs> um, And I, I don't want to go out of length, but I think that, you know, the, the majority of, pe- of people who are released from prison return after three years. And here I am now before you, you know, speaking to you all about my experiences. Um, you know, that means something momentous to me because, I, you know, uh, I think it says something to the transformative power of the education that I received in BPI. You know, um, at 16, I became a statistic. Here I am today beating them. So your life has been documented. Your time inside a prison, your education inside a prison, and your release from a prison, they've all been documented in a film. What is that like? Intrusive, to begin with. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's something that takes getting used to. But once you get used to it, um, I just have to say they're amazing at what they do. They, you know, they made it easy um, from the go. And so... <sighs> I guess it's just, uh, I, feel, I feel like what you're asking is like, why? Like, well, like why? I'm just wondering what, it, it, it what was, it's like to sit here and, and watch it's a, your it's surreal. self. It's, it's surreal, right? It's hard, but it's surreal. And it's, it's important, right? Like, I see it and I'm just like, and, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. I was watching you, your reactions throughout the film and, like, that matters to me. Um, that's what I want, right? I want people to connect with what they're seeing. That's the whole point. You know, um, there's some like amazing things going on um, that could help be helpful to so many people. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that it's happening. Um, I think people should be aware or be made aware that it is. Mm. Well, since they're so good at what they do. (laughs) Lynn, let me ask you, how did you decide this documentary needed to be made? And it needed to be the first one you directed by yourself. Um. Well, Sarah and I had a really very serendipitous and incredibly fortunate experience, which was in 2012, we were asked to guest teach one class to give a lecture, essentially, inside uh, the prison that you see here, the Eastern Correctional Facility. A professor that was an acquaintance was teaching a course in social movements, and our prohibition film had come out, and he asked if we would come up and show some clips from the film and have a conversation with the students. And we leapt at the chance to do that. Um, We'd been traveling the country sharing clips and having conversations, and we thought it would be interesting, and we were curious. And as we um, went into the classroom and showed our clips and had the conversation with the students, um, we had the most profound and interesting, sophisticated conversation we had about our film anywhere. Mm. As you can see from the the clips we showed, the students are extraordinarily focused and um, operating on a very deep level. Mm. So as we left the classroom, we just turned to each other and we were in the middle of our Vietnam series, or really not the middle, sort of the beginning to the middle. And we said, wow, that was extraordinary. We had no idea this was happening, as Giovanni was saying. Someone should really make a film about this. Mm. We kind of shrugged our shoulders, but, you know, it stayed with us. And um, I had the great fortune of teaching in the program the following year myself for eight weeks, a course on history and documentary, and being in those classrooms with the students, getting to know Max Kenner, who, ran, who runs the program and who founded it, their team, and especially the students. Over the course of that, we just decided we just had to find a way to make this film. And Sarah, how hard was it to find a way to make this film? I mean, I imagine getting 
access, the kind of up-close access that you clearly have, what is it like negotiating something like that for a producer with a prison? Right. Well, we really, um, we love a challenge. And as Lynn said, we were in the, in the process of making our Vietnam series. And at one point I thought, there's never anything that's going to be more complicated than trying to shoot in Vietnam. <laughs> and here we are. And we're now going to make, and Max Kenner and his team said, it's, I don't know how you guys are going to do it. It's going to be super complicated. Um, but actually over a two year period of time, we worked really closely with BPI and the governor's office and the state gave us permission. And then to be honest, the Department of Corrections really made it possible for us to make the film. So yeah. as difficult and onerous and sometimes wacky and unpredictable as it was to, to make it, they actually really believe in the program and were very generous and patient with us over time. And we kept asking for a little bit more and a little bit more. And I think the last year we were filming, every time I wrote to them, they said, please don't tell me this is your last shoot because you're lying. So um, I, I then stopped saying that. I think they probably still think we're going to show up with our cameras. Mm, it, anyway, it was, a, it was a great challenge and a total privilege, actually. So everyone on our team and our crew, we were really as lean and small as we could possibly be. Mm. We tried to be as quiet and unobtrusive as we could be and to make it as little about us as possible. And, you know, it was such a privilege to be in these spaces. Our cinematographers would basically, they're very busy, they're world famous, they travel the world, they get to do any, you know, amazing projects. They basically said to us, we want to be on every single shoot. Don't ever plan a shoot without us. This mm. is the most incredible work we've ever done. Mm. So uh, I think everybody who worked on the project really felt that way. I just think of a prison as a place with lots of rules, mm-hmm. and we certainly get more than a taste of that in the documentary. Um, were you ever in danger of running afoul of the rules, making someone angry? Um, did... did did this ever become an issue in trying to do this? No, it's a ser- prisons are serious places. We took it really, really seriously. We definitely pushed the envelope here and there, and rules sometimes changed over time, but no, it was... Mm, okay. Majority of the time we were on the school floor and in the classrooms, actually. Hmm. Sali, let me ask you about rules, hmm. um, because this is something that's very, very palpable you know, for anyone experiencing the documentary, I feel like the incarcerated students take the rules seriously, have very, very strong feelings about following rules and knowing better. I think that every student that is in BPI is at a phase in their life where they're thinking towards the future. And prison is a place where, you know, I, I use the word hyperbole, rules are hyperbolized in prison. Mm. Uh, to the point where, you know, you see the f- footage where, you know, someone had gotten in trouble and, and, and left. That doesn't necessarily mean anything super bad. It could have very well been that they forgot their ID. Like, there are things in which a person that is incarcerated could be in trouble for that you never think about in the street. How many times have you left your keys at home and then went back and got them? You walk out of your cell without that ID, there's no go back and get it. There's like, why don't you have your ID? And that's an infraction. Things like you walked in from the yard on a cold night and you forgot to take your hat off quick enough. So uh, the idea of what you can get in trouble for, you know, incarcerated people, have, they live through navigating rules. Mm. And those rules are very serious. Those, those rules have serious consequences. I think Rodney mentioned that not only was it the program, but he has to go to parole board. And the parole board doesn't really care about what the infraction was. The idea is it's been within three years and you had an infraction. It doesn't matter what that infraction was. And that can be the difference between you going home and not com- going home. So I think that in terms of BPI and what BPI does, it, it even heightens that sensitivity to following the rules. Hmm. So now it's not just about going home. In addition to waiting to go home, you know, being in a position to go home, is this idea of I have something very valuable that means something to me, and I want to ensure that I don't do anything to mess this up. Or mess it up for the people coming behind me. Uh, I think that that you know, is it's, it's, it's something that's navigated on a day-to-day basis by BPI students. Hmm. Giovanni... Why did you have to be forced into BPI? Uh, you got your GED. Uh, you know, you're, um, you're striking me more and more as a very capable man. Well, why, 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 why did you resist? Um, so, honest, so what happened was, you know, I've always wanted to go to college as a kid. You know, something, 
you know, your parents kind of want you, you know, they, they instill in you, you know. Um, but when I, when, I, when I was arrested, I, I give up all hope on the possibility of going to college, right? Um, you know, even if, when I got, whenever I would eventually get out, like, I'd have to, like, struggle to get a job and just make things me and just, like, survive. College, that was not even a thought in my head. And so, like, when I got to Eastern, um, which just happened accidentally. Like, I, it wasn't like I'd chosen there. I just got transferred from the last uh, prison that I was in. Um, I didn't know there was college there, right? I learned that there was college there when I got there. Um, and I was like 21 years old. I, I had a system. I'd been in for about five years. I had a system. I had a program. It worked for me. I wasn't really getting into trouble anymore. I kept my head low. I worked out. I played some sports. And, you know, I, I didn't really cause too much trouble. Um, and so... You know, this idea of just something else coming into it and just like having this added responsibility or just complicating that simple system for me was just like, "Eh, I don't know. Um, But I had a really good friend who was in there. And, um, you know, it's honestly, uh, there's, it's difficult to sort of, you can't really quantify or just, you you know, you can't explain to someone like the value of what you're getting through the, the education. You know, it's just something like you have to experience for yourself. And so, you know, oftentimes the students are the ones that know that and are re- we're really encouraging and recruiting. And that's what he did to me. He recruited me. He, I was a young kid. You know, I had a future because I wasn't going to be in there forever. Mm. And, you know, he wanted me to experience what he had experienced. He wanted me to have what he had. And I think that's really important to note about BPI students. It's like we, you know, we're not like this is a resource we have to hoard. And like, we're like, this is a resource we have to share it. And so we're very encouraging and trying to get people to apply and get in to the point where, where like, you know, people are tutoring people in the yard for the exam. Mm. You know, and that's just like awesome. Mm. What was it like getting to know so many men and women in this situation? Filmmakers, building relationships. I think you're placing a lot of emphasis on getting to know their families on the outside as well. What was it like? Um, I think we'll probably both want to chime in on that. It's, yeah, I, I it was, hope so. Yeah, it was an incredible privilege, really. And um, we knew the project we designed would take many years because we wanted to show the transformative power of education over time. So we expected to get to know people little by little. And like any other relationship, it does take a while to get to know people and for people to get to know us. So we spent quite a bit of time in both the women's prison that you saw at Taconic and at Eastern um, spending time with the students without a camera around, and just the two of us, or sometimes separately, sometimes with other members of our team, just hanging out and just talking and answering questions, asking, you know, and, and getting to know them, and also trying to understand what they thought a film about this subject should be about, and where we could point our camera and where we shouldn't, and what we should be, what kind of questions we should be asking. Mm. So it was extremely collaborative. And over time, it took a while just to feel comfortable, even to say, "Would you mind if we checked in with your mom?" Like. We talked to Giovanni's sister and mother and Rodney's sister you get to know in the film. And, you know, that, that took a lot of trust that was really over time. And hearing from the families about what it was like for them to have their brothers or sons in, in prison was also really important to our understanding the totality of what everybody was going through. Yeah, I think we tried, as Lynn said, to spend as much time without the cameras as we did with the cameras. And to... Uh, go, I think every Christmas break we went for four four years, we would try to go at times of the year when there weren't classes and school wasn't in session also. So Mm. realizing sort of how lonely the space can be when, especially when Bard wasn't in session. So, Mm. um, and yeah, just really spending time with them. And we do that with every film we make. And this was exponentially more that way. Can I ask you guys what it is like when Bard isn't in session? Huh. Like it seems all-consuming. Uh, so, so you know, like something to really, really focus. The good thing on? is Bard is always in session. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, we're very fortunate with you know, and specifically in Eastern. Eastern is very a, a very incarcerated men and women. I mean, incarcerated men in Eastern are very fortunate because that library never closes. Uh, you know, there's always something happening. If it's not a, a formal accredited class, there are student activities. We have a debate team. I mean, we, we operate like a college and that, that campus doesn't close, uh, mm. fortunate enough. In one way or another, with students are finding a way to do things together beyond you know, what's happening in the classroom, yeah. uh, which I think is a testament to the, 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 the way that 
Bard does his admissions process, mm. the way Bard moves the students along. You heard Rodney say something like, not for this, just for this cohort. That cohort model and building that, that camaraderie and that teamwork and that, you know, encourages you know, each other and beyond the classroom and beyond just BPI, the impact of, you know, students in BPI amongst themselves in the prison itself is such where it's, it's never off. One of the things that we were talking about earlier today is that we not only do we spend time one-on-one with um, the students, but we spend a lot of time with them collectively talking to each other. And the first day we were filming, we were setting up to do one of our traditional one-on-one interviews, and there were a bunch of guys in the library talking, and we were like, wait, we shouldn't do a formal interview. Let's film that. And that became a, a mm-hmm. running theme both in with the women and with the men to talk to them, again, with and without the cameras, together as a cohort and community as well as one-on-one. Let me ask more about the families on the outside. How were they feeling about their son, daughter, brother, sister? Um, how were your families reacting to the fact that you were doing this, gentlemen. In the film, you mean? Uh, yeah. yeah. Or, or yeah. BPI. That, yeah, BPI. Right. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that, that actually raises a good question. It's not just that you're pursuing an education. But is, is it safe to assume that any person, any incarcerated student who is pursuing this level of education has the full support of their family, uh, lots of encouragement, or not? Wait till you see this film. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that there are levels, for me personally, I'm going to speak for me personally, uh, you know, to date my mother. I'm 44. My mother had me when she was 16. And, uh, you know, I got my AA in 2007, my BA in 2009. And then literally when I got my BA in 2009, maybe like two months after my graduation, which she attended, I got a letter from her, and it was her acceptance letter to Stockton State College in New Jersey. And, you know, in, ter- in terms of what it means for a person that is incarcerated or a person in anybody's family to get a degree where degrees are, you know, not, not expected to be gotten, the impact interrelations between how that influences going both ways, you know, is immeasurable. And uh, today she has an MSW, right? And so, I mean, so, the, so when you ask that question, was it supportive? That, I mean, my family was extremely supportive and it meant a lot to all of them that I was doing what I was doing. And, and, most of the men that I know that have gone through programs that I went through, when we go, those graduations come, I mean, the, the most beautiful thing we have in BPI is, when, is graduation time. Mm. You, that prison, Leon Botstein is on that stage, like he's on a stage at, at Annadale campus. He shakes everyone's hand, and that place is packed with families, nephews, nieces, mothers, sons, brothers. And for that moment, you, you realize what this is really doing, not for the, just the individuals on the stage, but what it's doing for communities and families. Hmm. So, filmmakers, yeah. Um, unbridled support from your experience or were some parents maybe not just saying I don't know about this you know I mean it was mostly extremely supportive all the all the students that we got to know most of their families were extremely excited and proud of them and came to graduation and there were a few that were you know had complicated feelings probably to some degree about their um, loved one having committed a crime and being incarcerated and how difficult that was for their family. So it, it gets a little complicated, and we show some of that in the film, and that's an important element of just the, the strain on families when this happens. Mm. Um, but for the most part, it was very, very positive. Giovanni and his sister used to be very competitive. She was on co- in college on the outside. They would compete about homework and grades, so that yeah. was fun yeah. for us. Yeah. It wasn't watch. even a competition. So, are you being so? It wasn't a competition. She, you were, you, um, you were besting her, or well, she I was mean, besting it, you. It, it, granted, um, <laughs> so we were both like taking statistics or something around the same yeah. time right. and I'm much better at math than she is ah, and so okay. I was able to like help her through the phone with like her we're going to explain things and so yeah I'd say I won that one <laughs> <laughs> well this raises an interesting point clearly you learned that you were good at statistics um People develop a love for language. It sounds to me like there is a lot of intellectual capacity inside prisons that is going untapped in most cases. Do you feel like there's a lot of wasted human capital 
I think there are a lot of ways to human capital in this society, period. I mean, mm-hmm. that, I, that's not a, you know. Absolutely. Right? Some of that capital, some of that capital winds up in prisons. <laughs> a lot of, mostly because it's wasted. I mean, the reality is, again, for me, it was like this, this discovery moment where, oh, snap, this is something that I can do. And why didn't I figure this out sooner? Uh, how do we create those moments? And again, it goes back to what I said earlier about every time a student goes and then gets enrolled into BPI, that the implication of that reverberates not only for that person, but in the prison itself and in the community that person comes from, and in that person's family. Uh, and I think that, that, that this film does a great job at capturing what that means. Uh, I'm just, you know, I, he said it already, they're, they're so great at what they do. And I, I think it also goes back to a testament to BPI and at the level of rigor and commitment to being, you know, not a prison program. The fact that, you know, Lynn Novick just said she taught at BPI inside of prison. Imagine going into a classroom and Lynn Novick is your, is your professor on a history of documentary film, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, th- that, she decided to make this film after that. She engaged students as a professor first, and she was their professor. There are students right now in, 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 that were formerly incarcerated or incarcerated that can say, I took a class and Lynn Novick was my, my professor. I mean, that just goes to show not only is there, you know, wasted capital, but when that capital is lined up with the right opportunity, with the right person that cares, you know, and is committed to seeing that opportunity flourish, anything can happen. And that's where that anything happening is what we are. I, I will just say that when I, um, when I spoke with Max Kenner about the possibility of teaching in the program, I vividly remember the conversation. And his most um, important requirement was, look, you're going to teach a course on film, and we don't have any film classes, and the students will really be interested. But you have to promise me this is going to be very rigorous and very demanding. This mm. can't be like when I went to college. We had sort of, you know, Friday afternoon of the movies class, right? The right. movie class was a gut. Kind of remember that. I remember yep. that, yeah. yeah. That can't be what you're doing here. This has to be very serious. Mm. And I gulped pretty hard, to be honest. And, it, you know, it was very... Um, a big mountain for me to climb to figure out how to take that Saturday afternoon of the movie class and make it into something really, really serious. So I learned a lot in the process from the students. Hmm. This is a question from the audience, a good one. What is the admissions process? How does someone gain entry to BPI? Uh, you learn a lot more about this when you watch the film. But uh, <laughs> so the entry, the, it's, it's, it, there's an essay. We don't call it an exam, right? Uh, and ironically, we, we're not concerned about the things that other colleges are concerned about, right? We don't care about SAT scores. We don't care about, you know, your GPA in high school. <laughs> what, what we do care about is, you know, how, what is your potential to grapple with ideas? And again, you may not already know how to do that yet. But, we, but the process is, is designed to be able to basically identify your potential to do so. So we said all, the weirdest thing was like we don't care about the grammar, we don't care about the sentence structure. It's like, wait a second, so I don't have to prove that I know what I need to know in order to get to college? It's like, no, you don't, you don't have to prove to us that you know how to do the work. What's happening is you just prove that you have the potential and we'll show you and give you the tools you need to do the work. So the perspective is totally different, right? Mm. Uh, it's, it's not a thing where, you know, I need to know something before I get there. No, we're gonna, we want you to come here so you can know what you, learn what you don't know, not prove what you do know. Mm. Uh, so that process, and then I also mentioned earlier about the cohort model. And although we, we take students, you know, this happens on a very personal, individual basis, you know, there is an eye towards building a cohort that, and because of that, people are at various different stages of their education, at very different stages of their, you know, intellectual prowess, and somehow, magically, you get these groups of men, in particular, in the, like the prison I was in, that work very well together and drive each other and basically encourage and inspire each other to do, like, extremely well, and you never feel like you're in it by yourself, so... That, I think that is one of the, the, the main takeaways I take from what we do in admissions is that we admit individuals with an eye towards a collective, if, if that makes any sense. Yes. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Giovanni, what, what is, the, this is another question from the audience, right? <laughs> Sorry. Once you're in, uh, since 
this film shows you being escorted upon release by a corrections officer. What is the relationship? Is there resentment? Did you, did you, did, are the relationships complicated between the actual officers overseeing uh, this part of the prison? Uh, is it different? Is it? I'm, I'm curious. I guess we, we want a sense of the vibe. Mm, okay. <clears throat> so um, from my experience, I, I wouldn't always just want to speak from my experiences yeah. because everyone's experiences are different. Um, it's complicated. As, and I'm sure a lot of people would agree with me, but it's just, it's, it's a complicated thing, right? Um, you know, and uh, I may not have always understood this, but I understand this now. It's just like, you know, they're just trying to do a job, however it is they think that the job is supposed to be done. Um, and so uh, for me, I just try to not always hold that against them if, it, you know, if their job sort of impeded me from me trying to do what I was trying to do, right? Um, whether it was going to school or just, you know, trying to get to the yard or whatever. Um, and so there was a point when it was personal for me, you know, when I did sort of just conform to this idea of us versus them, you know, but that was early on when I was really young. Um, prior to, you know, before I could really sit back and, like, evaluate these relationships and the dynamics and, the, you know, the complications of it. Um, and I could sit back and be like, yeah, it, you know, what he did upset me, but I could, you know, I could think past that and it, it only upset me for a second, right? It, it, it was no longer personal for me. It was more I could, I could objectively view things um, in a way that just um, really just helped me navigate that space much more, you know, extremely well. Uh, Lynn, this is, uh, and Sarah, very, very different kind of film from the kinds that you have become famous for. Um, and your critical acclaim, it's these historical pieces, um, a lot of beautiful still images, and we've seen them. But this is real cinema verite. Mm -hmm. What has it been like for you all to kind of change formats? To be honest, it was quite daunting and um, really exciting at the same time. So to know that we weren't going to have a narrator and that the story would be told through the voices and the stories of the people who were generous enough to let us point cameras and just follow them around and trying to figure out how much should we do just, as Sarah was saying, sort of filming a scene? How much should we be interviewing people? Should we have any experts? What's the structure? You know, with our 400 hours, as you mentioned, um, that's a lot of material, and it didn't have any shape. Mm. We, but we did know that the film would begin with students starting the program, and it would end with graduation, or we hoped. And in between there, we originally were going to make a 90-minute feature, and the material was so rich that when we sort of picked the, the most interesting moments, it was eight hours long. And so we thought, okay, this isn't going to be a 90-minute feature. It would have been such a superficial look at this very complicated and nuanced story. So... Part of it was just learning as we went along and then working with our editor, Trisha Reedy, and her assistant um, to understand how to shape scenes, how to shape episodes, how to create narratives that made sense and through lines. Um, it was just really, really hard. Mm. Uh, and I should also say things, things happen that, you know, when we're making a film about history, we kind of knew already, looking back, what happened. Right. So we, we had to choose what to leave in and what to put, you know, how mm. what, the information mm. was already there, mostly. In this case, we didn't know what would happen when we started. So, for example, when Rodney got in trouble, we didn't know that was going to happen, obviously. Right. And, you know, what's, what, what would happen and how would that affect everybody? And there are many, many more moments like that. So we just had to try to be flexible and improvisatory and follow things around and put it all together at the end. I would imagine that upon seeing this film, people are going to say if this kind of program could just be scaled up <laughs> so that more people could participate, take advantage of an opportunity like this, um, that, you know, it'd be great. Um, is there, are there efforts in other places, in other states, because this is not a lot of men and women um, to try to use this as a model. Um, I, I imagine all of you can answer, but uh, Sally, you might. Yeah, so first thing, I mean, there's definitely other efforts going on all across the country. 
uh, BPI has something called, you know, the uh, the Consortium for the Liberal Arts, right, in prison, which basically partners with other institutions across the country to help them build the foundations they need to go and establish programs, uh, similar programs as BPI. And I think that, you know, the question of scale, it's a, it's a very complicated question. The question of scale is a very complicated question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular with BPI, what makes us so unique and what makes us work so well is this kind of like human touch that's able to happen because of, you know, our, cl- our course, our classes are usually anywhere from 12 to 15, 16 students in size at any given class. And what that gives us is a very good opportunity to have professors and students really engage each other. And we, we do seminar-style classes also, right? This, we, this is not like a teacher at the blackboard, although it is with math, right, because math is different. But like a teacher at the blackboard, like just, just sitting there, just writing stuff. As you saw uh, Professor uh, Wilder, Craig Wilder, he was sitting, you know, he, it was a conversation happening mm-hmm. amongst him and the students and students themselves. You know, the worst thing that can happen is as we get this, you know, this as a model in terms of making sure that higher education is really in the conversation in, in terms of how we move forward to, to do stuff like reduce recidivism and reduce, you know, the circumstances and conditions that cause people to come back, which prepare them to go out and stay out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important that we do that in a way that doesn't just reproduce what we already have, which is felon school systems and felon systems of higher education. That's all about headcount. Uh, and not saying headcount is not important. The way we approach that can't be this kind of cookie cutter uh, we just need to have bodies that are moving through institutions, and that's going to solve our problem. The quality of the institutions ha- has to matter. Uh, and, and again, it goes back to that conversation that Max had with Lynn about you can't come in here and do a class that's about just killing time. Yeah. Or, you know, just, just, just say they're getting credits. It has to be meaningful and rigorous so they can walk away with something that matters to them and they can keep with them and they can grow and learn from. Uh, so it's, 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 not, it's not as simple as just everybody just popping up and doing, doing college in prison. Mm. The way college and prison is done has to be thought through. Mm. I, do, I do think, yeah. Um, one of the things that really changed over the course of making the film, was, as you said, we sort of got into this in 2012. And in 2014, we first started filming. Governor Cuomo dipped his toe in the water of kind of thinking new ways about funding um, higher education in prison, and then in 2016, Obama reintroduced the idea of making incarcerated individuals eligible for Pell Grants, and right now we are criminal justice reform, and what we're doing in the country is such a national conversation, I think at the center of it should be and is higher education, and there's legislation on the Hill about that right now, so I think our country is, is um, for the first time since 1994, really thinking about how to create a better... Uh, working structure for higher education to be in prisons. And I mean, one of the things I've heard Max Kenner say so many times is that we should have the same range of opportunities of education inside prison as out here. So if it's, you know, very programs like BPI and everything from that to a community college and everything in between, people should have the same opportunities there that everybody else has. I want to ask, I think folks want to know what you two gentlemen do. <laughs> Now, um, at, you know, you speak very knowledgeably about this program and its benefits. But what what are you up to now in your lives? Um, so um, currently, my day job, um, I'm a, a case manager for um, the largest nonprofit bail fund in the country. Um, so what we do is we bail people out of jail who've been arrested for misdemeanors and whose bails are $2,000 and less um, for free. We do nothing back. You don't have to report, you know, and we find that the majority of our clients return to court and have really positive outcomes. You know, no one should be inside. No one should be kept inside because they can't afford their bail because they're poor. Um, being poor should not be a crime. Okay. And, um, I mean, do you know how to code? Yeah, yeah, not a code. My I sense just, is that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I used to also work for. To give you a broader yeah. view, I, I used to work for the Bell Fund. For I, I worked for the Bell Fund as a data analyst when I first. I was released also November three years, and my first job was as a data analyst for the Bell Fund. Mm. And uh, then I I, was, I stayed there for nearly a year, and then I joined the BPI team as advisor to the directors, to do stuff like launch an amazing micro college in Brooklyn which is a tuition-free college for men and women that live in the Brooklyn area. It operates inside the Brooklyn Public Library. And, uh, right. Okay. 
And now I am full-time Python full-stack programmer that basically builds uh, database solutions and mobile application APIs and also mobile applications themselves. And that's what I do right now. And, and most recently I joined, uh, I had this project called Super Social, which is I was the, the sole developer on, and it went so well. They was like, listen, why don't you become our CTO? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be locked into it. You know, <laughs> that type of responsibility. But uh, they convinced me, and I joined them. And uh, it's, a, it's a startup, so visit super.social and see what it's about. <laughs> Someone in the audience would like to know if you all go back to your neighborhoods to encourage non-incarcerated teens to stay focused on higher education, to challenge themselves. I'm a transplant. Uh, I was born and raised in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and now I live in New York. Uh-huh. But, you know, th- I mentioned the micro-college. Part of what the micro-college did was m- one of my major jobs was uh, student r- attainment and recruitment, which is, means I went to all these programs around the city of New York City, and particularly Brooklyn, but really throughout the entire city, trying to encourage people to come and take advantage of the opportunity that we were given at the Brooklyn Public Library, which is basically a liberal arts education from Bard College. I mean, when they graduate, they're going to walk across the stage in Annadale, like, so, I mean, in just encouraging people to make them understand that this opportunity is here for you. And it's not just, we're not going to just warehouse you as a student. And which is what was so meaningful for me with BPI. It was like one of my first interactions with an educational institution where I didn't feel like an object, right? I felt like someone that was in power with agency and the agency was respected. And part of what I'm trying to encourage people to do is, is to like basically understand that there are institutions like that out there. There, there, you know, it doesn't have to, you have one bad experience where you think that schools wasn't, you know, providing what you need. Mm. That's not necessarily the case for every school that's out there, and you can still pursue education. Mm. I would say, just to, to piggyback on that, a number of the students that we followed who uh, were released over the course of making the film did go back into the neighborhoods where they came from and tutored young students and really were very, very involved in whatever else they were doing, whether they were volunteering or working, doing that work, and I I think they took a lot of um, pride in that, and it was really exciting to see them doing that work. Hmm. Here's another question from the audience. Um, what other than a college education would be useful for someone re-entering society after being incarcerated? I, and I mean, I would be interested in all of your answers, like what could help um, not just from personal experience, but from observations? I think that is, first and foremost, acknowledging the fact that everybody is different. That that thing may be different for every single person that is released. Mm. The circumstances that, that basically create the, the opportunity for people to wind up in prison are sometimes unique and sometimes general. And I think one is mental health is, like, critical. Uh, you know, in transitioning, as, as prepared as I was, you know, in terms of, I got an education, I got a degree. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good in terms of thinking on my feet. I'm employable, but how am I gonna manage, you know, just debriefing from being in a place where I wasn't allowed to think in ways that I wanted, I wasn't allowed to express myself in certain ways. Like how do I transition to being able to do those type of things, right? How do I transition into actually gaining my agency back in a way that I haven't utilized in, I did 20 years in prison, uh, right? How do, I, how do I gain my agency back? What does it mean to be, you know, a father? I have children. What does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a husband? And they seem like, you know, we take those things for granted. And people struggle with just, like, finding themselves. It can be overwhelming at times. And, you know, so first and foremost, I would say anything that basically helps returning individuals in terms of mental health. Just, like, debriefing. We do it for soldiers, right? People People who come back from not being in society... We give, them, we give them resources to become productive in society. Mm. And prison is no different, right? Prison is, is on the fringes of society. It has its own culture, right? Some of it mandated. It's a mandated culture, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to be able to equip people to make the transition back mm. in society where they can function. Giovanni, you went in at 16. You came out at 28. Mm. Yeah, um, I, like- I agree with everything Sali just said. Um, yeah, you have to prepare people um, for that, the change, the adjustment. It, it's a completely different world. And for someone like myself who kind of grew up in there, it was a really different world. Like, I, I used to have anxiety trying to cross the street. Like, it would be no car coming, but you couldn't tell me I wasn't going to get hit by a car if I didn't wait for that light. 
you know, and there's something psychologically restricting about that, like, I have to wait for the light. Mm. Um, no car is coming, but I have to wait for the light. Um, and it's that debriefing, right? That, that transitioning from operating in this really microcosmic world to this larger world with more expansive rules that now you have access to, but you don't really know how to utilize. I didn't know how to manage my checkbook, right? Like, I, I didn't know how to pay rent. I didn't know how to pay a bill. Like, these are things that I needed to learn, but no one taught me before I came home, and I was just like, plop, teach yourself. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of support that people do need transitioning from being incarcerated to being, you know, released, to being out here in society again. Mm. I want to go back to the, the question of rules and how rigid life can be, even some of the running afoul of the rules that you get at in the documentary mm-hmm. is... Is, is there something in place to protect an incarcerated student from the kind of misunderstanding that might get you thrown into the box? Something like what? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about... You know, you know, the scariest thing in the world, I mean, it's, it's very scary... The fact when you when you get to the point, and Rodney said it is my word against the person who wrote to take his word, and that person had to, that he was relied upon that person to come to the conclusion I may have overreacted. If he didn't come to that conclusion, that thing stands as the only fact that matters, and there's no voice that can stand in for Rodney to say, "No, you got this wrong." The only voice that could do that is the person who decided that what Rodney did was wrong, right? And that is a scary that is a scary fact. You you said it, you said it, you said misunderstandings. When misunderstandings become grounds for, you know, punitive measures, mm. it's, 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 a, it's a very scary thing. And, and we're talking about, at the, the extreme implication of that is, in the very uh, maximum, two years extra in prison, right? You go to a, a parole board and they decide, in, in addition to losing your opportunity to be in college, you lose the opportunity to be in college, and then you, then you get hit at the board, and then you're in for two more years, and you come home even less prepared when it's time for you to come home. So, I mean, there are so many implications behind rules. And it's, it is, the, I see people say scary movies. The scariest movie I ever had was the one I was living in, right? Mm-hmm. You know, scary <laughs> movies is all about being in these situations where you can't control the outcome and danger is imminent. There's always this overwhelming imminence of danger that says you're not guaranteed your tomorrow in the way that you know it today. And that is not up to you how that happens. What are you hoping this documentary will change about the way people think of people who are incarcerated? Well, we'd like to say that the film raises two questions. What is prison for and who in America has access or should have access to education? And, you know, I think the first thing is to put, sort of remind our audience that... um, to humanize the people that are incarcerated in a world where the media so often just stereotypes and demonizes people. So that's the first thing. There's so much room for that narrative to evolve and change, and it is happening already, but um, we think that's extraordinarily important. And then, as you were discussing earlier, the untapped potential and the fact that the tyranny of low expectations, the, the, the catastrophic effect that has had on communities, especially communities of color, where expectations are that people are potentially not capable or not worthy. Clearly, every single day that we were in the class and getting to know the students proved that completely wrong. So at least those two things would be a good start. Do you ever get pushback about the kinds of crimes that many of the students were in for? Um, You know, violent crimes... Do do we need to rethink the way we shift the way we think about people who have committed violent crimes? I think I think the film hasn't come out yet, so we we don't know what kind of reaction the country is going to have to that question. But I think philosophically, for us, it was very important to um, get to know the students and get to know their families. And you'll each case and each. Um, story is different as the film unfolds, and I think we have 
um, spent a lot of time talking about innocence and nonviolent drug offenders as a safe way to thinking about prison. And for us, we wanted to explode that a little bit and mm. think um, on a deeper level, as Rodney so eloquently says, of how we think about um, what anyone's life is over the course of what you do that's good and what you do that's bad and what you're remembered for and what you can change from and apologize for. And that is a, um, we hope the conversation around those things will be um, maybe a little bit different. I, I would add to that, that uh, like I said, I did 20 years in prison, 20 to 40 years was my sentence, and I was convicted of a violent crime. And the, the reality is I came home like 95% of other people that are in prison are going to come home. For me, the overwhelming question this film raises is, and that question of what is prison for, understanding the fact that 95% of people come home, what do we want to come home? The reality is that the crime I committed is never going to go away. I can never erase that. Uh, it, was, it, was, you know, it was basically something that I wish I could take back that I can't. And in light of that, I was still coming home regardless at some point. That's just the reality. This is not to speak towards victims or me or the reality was that the way my sentence was structured, I was going to come home. And today I sit here and talking to you. And if you didn't know that I committed a violent crime, you wouldn't know. Uh, you know, when I go on interviews for tech jobs, I've interviewed at Google. I've been on hundreds of interviews before I decided what I was going to do. Uh, none of them knew that I was a formerly incarcerated person until I told them. And I made sure to tell every last one of them. And the key was, even if they don't hire me, Based on the conversation I had with them before I told them, I want to let them know that the next person that comes in here, they might tell you that first. You can hear him out because obviously, based on the conversation we just had, you admire me as a person, as a coder. Before you knew, well, let me tell you something that you don't know about me. Hmm. And I think that that is the question for me in terms of this question of crime and what people do and what they did is the fact that those people are coming home. And how do you want them to come home? Do we want them to be prepared to come home and stay home and be productive? Or is it that, you know, we don't care what happens while they're there. We just want to punish them. And when they come home, they come home. No one's actually going to say that, right? No one, if you really force someone to get to that conclusion, even people who are against what we do, they're not going to say that. They might say they'd rather them do this than college, but they're not going to say we want them to come home the same way they were when they went in. And if you, if you can get people to acknowledge the fact that everyone is different and the things that are work for people are different, and higher education is a viable option for a lot of men and women who are in prison, that are going to put them in a position when they come home that they could be the people that you need them to be when they're home. Hmm. Well, Actually, I got another question from the audience asking how, how respected the BPI degree is. Really? <laughs> yeah. I'm no, I mean, it, someone yeah. wants to know, like, how, um, like, well, well, you well, say, I hey. Just, I just want to say, it's, it's actually not a BPI degree. It's, it's a, a bar, degree it's from Bard College. It's a Bard College yeah. degree. So um, it's a Bard okay. degree. All right. Yeah. I'm going to give you a real story. I was on a train when I first came home, and uh, I live in the Bronx. Nobody knows about New York, but New York is like, the Bronx is as far, you know, north as you can go in, in, in the city. And then you come down on a train, and you go through Manhattan, and you go to Brooklyn. Right. And as you go down, things change on the train. So when I get on a train at 5 o'clock in the morning, it's like, you know, kids going to school in the Bronx, people going to work in the Bronx, and then you get to Manhattan, all those people get off, and now people that's going to Wall Street get on. And it, you know, I was a data analyst, so I, I, I didn't have, you know, I could have wore a sweater, but I used to wear these suits and ties as a data analyst. You know, I just came home, so I figured that's what you got to do, right? You got to look professional. <laughs> so, 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 so I'm sitting down, and I'm on, I'm on a train, and this older guy gets on, and he has like this, this worn, beaten, you know, uh, cash uh, uh, briefcase, and this woman gets on, and she's like, he's older, he's like maybe 60s, and she's young. And she's reading a book on a train called Just Mercy. Mm. Honestly, I, I hadn't read Just Mercy yet at that time. I'm going to be very honest with you. I, I had heard, heard about the author, right? <laughs> and I've met him before, but I heard about the author. But I hadn't read the book yet. And I wasn't really quite sure exactly what she was reading. And the, oh, the, the, the man asked her, oh, what are you reading? She said, I'm reading a book about the death penalty. And that strap hanging. I mean, I'm sitting there hanging over me, right? And he says, oh, are you a lawyer? She says, yes. She says, yo, but I do corporate law. He said, oh, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a financial analyst. I manage this, I manage that. Let me get your card. I might need you one day. And she, he says, where did you go to school? She says, she went to Amherst, right? He said, I went to Dartmouth, right? So she says, where do you go to graduate school? I went to Columbia. I went to Columbia too. 
And she gets off the train. This man, he, he, was, he was a white man. He says to me, oh, yeah, she went to Amherst, but you wouldn't know anything about that. That's what he says to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I went to Bard. He said, oh, okay, okay, Bard. Good school, good school. Bard, Amherst. So that is how much a Bard degree is worth. Okay. Right? All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Giovanni, do you, I mean, do you have occurrences? I mean, you're having to manage occurrences like this, um, you know, these kinds of stories. Um, I don't, I haven't had an experience uh, tantamount to that. Um, (laughs) That that was great. That's such a great story, man. I wish I had that story. Well, I'm sure you... But, um, you know, uh, in my experience, the bar degree is as respected as the bar degree, sh- the bar degree should be because, um, you know, uh, it, it's difficult to, you know, not... You, you just see, like, the rigor of the curriculum that, right. you know, what they go through on campus, we're going through the same thing, just in a different environment, um, you know, and so we're just as prepared as the students on campus. And, you know, and whether it's an employer or just some, part, some person, you know, you're, you're discussing, or, you know, um, they see that. It, you know, it, it, it's not something that goes unnoticed. Hmm. I mean, I will say from everything I've heard from faculty, the work they do is not the same as they do on the Annandale campus. It's actually much harder. Wow. The faculty have to up the curriculum and make it more demanding and give you know, more reading and more involved work to do because the students demand it, actually. And Max demands it also. Also, you know, all of you go to your alumni reunions at graduation and you go to Bard College and you go to graduation and on the alumni tent Mm -hmm. is this whole community. So they are an integral part of the -hmm. larger Bard universe. And and I will just say, um, for our alma mater, Yale, and for all the other elite institutions like Amherst and Dartmouth and Columbia and all these other great, well-endowed, wealthy institutions, I think it's actually criminal that they don't do more to... Uh, This is actually another great question when you talk about the rigor, another great question from the audience. At what point in the middle of the rigor... Did your thoughts shift from, I'm just trying to get through, I'm just trying to get through, to, you know, this is my future. My future is important to me. No, I have a good story for that one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, Whoever so asked this question, it, thank you. A, it's like the end of my, I believe, like my first or second semester. And I'm like, great, I can just sit down and read a magazine and not think, right? I'm just like, I'm tired of everything, history. I just want to read. I want to relax. I'm tired. And I pick up this magazine and I begin to read this this article. And as about maybe a paragraph in, I'm like, this writer sucks. This grammar grammar is horrible. Like, I don't want to continue to read this article because the writing was bad. You know what I mean? Like, that's when I realized that the way I thought was different, you know, I was operating on a different level of just like whether, I, you know, I wasn't in school and I didn't, it wasn't a conscious act, it was, I couldn't help it. You know, I identified it immediately. And that's sort of when it happened for me, I was like, wow, huh. I want more of this. Huh. That's a good story. Sally, do you, uh, do you feel like there was a moment there was a moment when it stopped being this struggle to get through one day. I'm not going to lie. It was never a struggle for me to get through one day. Yeah, No, I got you. It, it was like from, from the day that I got in, I was chasing ghosts, man. I was like, yo. What, what? So when I, when I got in, I was part of like the second cohort, second four cohort. And uh, two and a half, it's like this weird thing. that, But it's, it's like, a, you know, the guys that went in before me had set the bar so high. You know, it was it was it was still it still had that novelty feel to it. It was still this fear about it might leave tomorrow. Uh, you know, it was at that stage where you didn't know if it was going to be the fear of saying, you know, college was in New York State before and it had left. And you felt like if I if I don't if I don't do this now, there's no telling what's going to happen tomorrow. I, you know, I drove Max crazy with all the things that I wanted, all the classes I wanted. You know, I wanted more and more and more. And that was about the idea of if I don't take advantage of it and it leaves, what does that mean? Mm. Uh so with that, it wasn't about getting through. It was about getting in and getting in it, the work of it. 
and relish in that moment as long as it was around. And fortunately, 20 years later, it's still there. So, you know, and, uh, yeah, I think that more than anything, that was what motivated me when I got in. We have a question from a 40-year inmate. Mm. Um, calls, calls themselves an inmate. Uh, has been out for seven months. Um, do you think your life must be to help others in prison across the U.S.? Do you, do you feel now that you have been through this that this is an obligation? Absolutely. What, what does it mean to help others? I mean, I, I believe wholeheartedly that it is an obligation. That's one. I think that's done in a number of ways. One way is literally, I was at San Quentin yesterday, and I had the pleasure of you know, having, having conversations with men who are now currently in a situation I was in you know, three years ago. I think that there are a lot of different ways that it's done. And for me, one of the main ways is constantly expanding other people's minds about what we're capable of. So every time somebody like Giovanni gets a job and does well at it, every time you know, I get another coding project or I go on a different interview, even if I don't get it, and I'm able to ha- have a connection with a potential employer. Uh, in addition, doing things like this, I mean, I, I go to conferences all year round, and I, I speak to people that's really already in the work. But I think even more important than, you know, joining those conferences, like just the day-to-day living and encountering people and changing what they thought was possible for a person that's formerly incarcerated. What that does is when the next person comes behind me, it says, I, I remember I met Soli Israel or Giovanni Hernandez or, you know, uh, Daiwan Tetro, and they were great people. Let me see. Let me give you the opportunity to show me, you know, what you bring to the table. I think for me, that is like crucial that people who are formerly incarcerated, like myself, constantly take advantage of a, a, a variety of different professions, careers, and thrive in those careers, professions. I don't care if it's plumbing. I don't care if it's, you know, whatever it may be. But just thrive and, and be good people and productive and leave an impression that's positive. And I think that that, that goes more and further than a lot of other things <laughs> that may look like they go, they go far and wide, but they don't. What are your best hopes for the impact of this film? Wow. Well, first of all, we just want a lot of people to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Seriously. Tell your friends. Yes. We really were, you know, it's a small project and it, it's not a big blockbuster like the other things we've done with Ken Burns. So we really need everyone in this room to help spread the word that we want the whole country to watch the film and then to talk about it. It's going to air the week of Thanksgiving. Mm. And so we think that's a really exciting opportunity for families to get together and speak about what they've seen. And so that's the first step. And um, then, you know, as Sarah was saying, what's happening politically is really interesting and important. So there is real change about to happen. And so we want the film to really help shape the conversation that Sally was saying about what if education, higher education returns on a large scale, how it's done. And then on the deeper question, as we said, you know, it's, it's just, it's been transformative for me and Sarah to work on the project. And we have the opportunity, we think, through the generosity of the students to open up a lot of minds about all the things we've been talking about. Mm. I, I have a lot of questions here asking what people can do. Hmm. So I'll let that be the last question. Um, what, if they want to do something, Mm. Um, whether it's to make a program like this more available to more people or like what what can people do well I mean I would say first to make sure everybody watches the film and then also to put pressure on our public officials to hold them accountable for this totally broken system that absolutely has failed the people in it and and to and to put pressure on our institutions of higher learning that have also totally failed to offer the opportunity fairly to the society that we all want to live in. That would be my list. Yeah. I think, yeah, for people who watch this film, you know, as you see this, this long process of people transforming themselves in, you know, in a very cliche way, becoming humanized, as they say, I think it's important that people that you know that don't watch it, like those are all potential employers, those are potential people that might encounter someone, like share you know, what you discover about the men and women in this film. And hopefully through that sharing, you can at least plant a seed that can give somebody the opportunity to open their minds to what's possible 
for men and women who may have made a mistake and need someone to believe in them. Uh, what's most important, I think, again, this, this question of what happens inside of prisons and people come out, coming out of prisons is very dependent upon the people that are going to be encountered by people who are coming out of prison, even more than the prisoner themselves, even more than the formerly incarcerated person, him or herself. Who we engage in contact with in that first three, four months can either lift us up or destroy us. Like, I mean, it goes back to that mental health question, right? So in addition to like supporting programs like BPI directly through funding and, and, and money and talking to your public officials, I think just what this film is doing is adding to the different levels of narrative and how we engage formerly incarcerated people and incarcerated people and understanding that the way you engage them has a very important impact upon them and what they're capable of accomplishing. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's critical. Um, again, I'm in total agreement with what Ali said. Um, um, for me, it's, it's that, that, you know, that change of the, changing the narrative, right? Changing the way we speak and think about people who are incarcerated, people um, also changing the way we speak and think about what prisons are for. Right? You know, what, what, what's hap- what, what do we want to happen in these things for these people? Because we also are changing the way we're thinking and speaking about the people that are coming out. Again, it's that idea of like, who do you know? What types of people do we want coming back out? You know, um, because if you go in, if you come out the same way you went in, then it's point. It's just a system that continues to revolve itself. It's pointless, right? The purpose is to um, the purpose is to sort of. Honestly, sometimes I don't even know what the purpose is, based on my experience. Well, I think that's, that's honest. I think that's going to be one of the interesting topics of discussion about this film mm-hmm. is exactly what the purpose mm-hmm. is. It's just so complicated. I want to thank these panelists. To Lynn Novick, director of College wow. Behind Bars, Sarah Botstein, producer of College Behind Bars, Giovanni Hernandez, and Sally Israel, alumni of the Bars Prison Initiative. We also thank everyone in our listening audience. And we will remind you that College Behind Bars airs on November 25th and 26th on PBS. This program has been held in association with KQED. I'm Brian Watt. Thanks to everyone.